Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, we're going to just begin there and we'll kind of hit some high points in various portions of the Bible this morning. And before we really get going, just to as a reminder, this morning is the second of two messages in what we're calling Joyful Generosity Revisited. Just kind of a, a brief little review of where we were a number of years ago. I, I gave you a history of where we started this last week. And today we'll get more into this actual, actual theology, the heart issue behind how we do church and how we support the work of the church. And just so you know, in the foyer, there are, uh, there's a table with materials about joyful generosity. If it's new to you, you'll also continue receiving some information in the mail uh, concerning our upcoming Commitment Sunday and then Celebration Sunday. We've got a really neat calendar planned, and we're excited to see what the Lord does to continue His work here, to continue uh, building the, the campus here that the Lord gave us uh, just under a year ago. So we're thankful for that. So as you're finding Psalm 24, would you pray with me for a moment and then we'll go to the Word of God. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity. We have just sung of this glorious doctrine that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things. And under that control, we can rest and we can have joy. We can have tremendous anticipation of being used by you for the kingdom work fully knowing that the elect will all come to faith in Christ and you have allowed us to have a small part in that work. I pray that our hearts and minds would be attentive this morning as we think upon the gospel, as we think upon the fact that you saved us, not because of righteous works that we had done, but because of your mercy. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I'll read a couple verses from Psalm 24 in a moment, but first I want to take us to a familiar scene. It's one you're, you're well acquainted with. It's in Luke 7. Luke 7 records the account of a woman who demonstrated genuine gratitude before the Lord. It was thankfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you recall the scene, Jesus is eating dinner at the home of a self-righteous man named Simon, a a religious Pharisee, a a false believer, we would say. And this dinner would have been in a large courtyard in the the middle or off to the side of his actual home. And when dinners happened in this setting, it was often an actual event that people from the town would say, well, there's nothing on Netflix tonight, so I think we'll go and we'll watch this dinner with this religious figure and now with Jesus. And so it proved promised to be a a tremendous conversation in the audience was a woman that verse 37 says was a sinner verse 38 says she was standing behind jesus and she was crying now why is it important that she's identified as a sinner and why is it important that she's crying now first of all her identity as a sinner is important because it indicates she knew who she was she knew her status she knew where she stood before the lord She was a woman, many feel, was a a prostitute who had ruined her life, ruined her reputation. She was a woman who had no hope of ever pleasing God. She had no hope of living the righteous life that would be pleasing to the Lord. Why did she have no hope? 
Because no human being can erase their sin. Every single way that you violated God's law, God's perfect character, God's holiness, every lie, every theft, every wicked thought, every selfish act, they're all recorded in the halls of heaven and there's not one thing you can do to erase one of them. But is that why she was crying? It's not. She was crying because she had heard the message that Jesus had been preaching. He'd been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus was offering forgiveness. He was offering entrance into his kingdom. Now, at this point in redemptive history, she wouldn't have fully understood the means of forgiveness yet, that Jesus would soon die on the cross to pay the penalty owed to God for her sin. She did understand, though, the effect. She did understand the result. She did understand the outcome. And what is the result of the forgiveness of God given solely by His grace, solely by His kindness? The result is that the record of her sin was wiped away. That as God says in Isaiah 1, her sins were like scarlet, but now they were white like snow. And so she's overcome with gratitude. She's so overcome with thankfulness to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he'd erased the debt of sin she owed to God and that her eternal future was secured, that her life of sinful rebellion had been cleansed from the halls of heaven, that she gave generously and emotionally. Luke 7.38 records, standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears, And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. In the ancient Near East, it was customary to treat a guest with honor by having his feet washed upon entering the home. Self-righteous Simon had insulted Jesus by not washing his feet. But this woman did wash his feet and she did so with her own tears of gratitude and joy and she poured this expensive perfume on his feet in a show of loving return for what he had done for her. You know how many sermons on giving she had heard? Zero. You know how many sermons on gratitude she had heard? Zero. You know how many sermons on sacrifice she had heard? Zero. And yet she demonstrated giving and gratitude and sacrifice. Why did she do this? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who alone is able to appeal to God the Father to grant total and eternal and complete forgiveness for all the ways you violated the holy and righteous nature of God. That one saved her. And her salvation gave her an instinct. And that instinct, that yearning, that longing was to give in sacrificial gratitude. She longed to do so. And that's what I'd like to address this morning. The the heart attitude of giving sacrificially for the sake of Christ. The most tangible way we're called in Scripture to demonstrate this heart attitude is with the financial offerings we give to the Lord and to His work. And if you've been at Grace for any time whatsoever. I've never shied away from that. That is a part of being a Christian. In fact, I would say a professing believer who says, I have no desire to give to the work of the Lord, I would question his salvation. We never shy away from that. We're obedient to the Lord in all respects, including this one. And what I'd like to do this morning is really just summarize the longer series we did back in 
2019 called Joyful Generosity. And this is the one sermon where you could literally follow along in a book if you have the book Joyful Generosity. But I just want to survey what I'll call a biblical theology of giving. There's one person, though, that this message is not for, at least not yet. And I want to be very clear about this. This is not for the one who has not yet believed the gospel and repented, turned away from loyalty to sin and had a sorrowful attitude towards sin. We ask nothing of you whatsoever. We ask only that you consider your condition before God. We call this a lost condition, that you still owe God the full penalty of every way you've ever violated His holiness. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is death, eternal punishment away from the blessing of God. But just like the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears of gratitude, you can have that penalty paid in full by the substitutionary death of Christ on on your behalf. How is that? How, How do you have that gift? By believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came to take away your sins, that He died to pay that penalty for you, and by forsaking your loyalty to your sin, forsaking your loyalty to yourself, you enter into the citizenship of God's kingdom. But this message is not for you if you have not come to faith in Christ. We ask nothing of you except that we plead that you believe. But for all who are following Christ, you are the weeping woman. You are the one filled with gratitude. You are the one with a heart of joyful generosity. What is joyful generosity? Very simply, it is your response to God's grace to save. It's your response to God's grace to save. We yearn to respond. And so I'm going to give you seven reasons we give to the Lord. Now, if this happens to be your very first Sunday at Grace Bible Church and you feel like you just won the negative lottery uh, because we're preaching on giving, really, I finally made it to church first time in 10 years and he's talking about money. Don't worry, we're not asking you for money whatsoever. This is for the members of Grace to take care of and And the joy for me is that I know I'm preaching to the choir because on average, the members of our church give substantially more than the national average. So we're attempting to simply do what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian church, that you excel still more, that you do more. So let me give you seven reasons we give. And this will just be in survey format here. First reason, give because of God's ownership. Give because of God's ownership. Now, Psalm 24, our starting point this morning, this is a prophetic, predictive picture of the future day when Jesus Christ comes to rule the entire world. And in so coming, He will demand holiness. He will take back all that is His, the entire earth. He alone will rule the world. And some of them might ask the question, what gives God the right to demand holiness? What gives God the right to come and take the earth to rule Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19 picture this coming of Christ as a violent overthrow. It's not a pleasant scene. It's a conquering of the planet. So the question is, what gives him the right? Who does he think he is? Here's what gives him the right. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is Yahweh's, as well as its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What gives God the right? 
The fact that he owns everything gives him the right. He has total rights over everything, you included. And the implications of God's ownership, we could spend hours talking about this, but just think about some of these implications. A woman cannot abort her unborn baby in the name of her right to her own body because her body or her baby's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to God. You don't have the right to redefine or to destroy your marriage. Marriage was invented by God. It's, it's His. You don't have a right to compare your will with God's will. He owns you. And by the way, you don't have a right to reject Christ. You are not allowed to reject Christ. You don't have that right. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This isn't a suggestion. This is an imperative verb in Greek. It is a command. Take my yoke upon you. Romans 6, 16 says, You are slaves of the one you obey. That every person is a slave. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. There's no third category. You're either the slave of God or the slave of sin. Now, I understand that the idea of a slave in the Bible is misunderstood if you interpret it through the eyes of historic European and American slavery. That's, we all interpret the Bible with history. The bigger idea of slavery in the Bible has to do with ownership and ultimately can turn out to be a, a wonderful thing. That ownership often meant job security, a home, a paycheck, a retirement plan. But the point is, Psalm 24 leaves no stone unturned to make sure to communicate that God owns everything. Now, God is very gracious. He's loaned you some clothes to wear. We're all happy about that this morning, right? (laughs) He's loaned you some air to breathe. Can you imagine if he just took it back for just five minutes? He's loaned you food to eat. He's loaned to you water to drink. He's loaned to you a wife or a husband. He's loaned to you children. He has loaned to you a place to live. He has loaned to you the intelligence and the skill to earn money. And he's loaned to you the money itself. So it's so important to get the notion out of our heads and our hearts that, that anything we have actually belongs to us. It doesn't. You own nothing. It's all his. And everything we've been loaned is expected to be used to the glory of God. The husband God loaned to you, God's expectation is that you respect him and honor him. The wife God has loaned to you, the expectation is that you love her and cherish her. The children God has loaned to you, the expectation is that you raise them to know the gospel and to obey their parents. The church family God has loaned to you, his expectation is that you be a faithful and humble and effective church member. And the money that God has loaned to you. His expectation is that you use it for kingdom purposes, which includes supporting your family and the larger purposes of the kingdom. Let's go over to the New Testament together to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We'll read a a familiar story beginning in verse 16. And this brings us to the second reason we give. Matthew 19, verse 16, the second reason we give, we give because of God's grace. We give because of God's grace. 
This is a familiar story, but I'm going to reference some details. It will be easier for me to simply read it to you. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible But with God, all things are possible. Now, this is a very familiar story to you. And just so you know, the point of this episode is not we should be as generous as Jesus wanted the rich young man to be so that we can have treasure in heaven. That's not the point of the story. That misses the entire point, in fact. The rich man thinks he's going to please Jesus with his good works, but he doesn't have anything God wants. He doesn't have anything God wants. And in fact, because the man idolized his possessions, Jesus is demanding that he give up those idols. That he tear those idols down. Because you cannot worship God along with anything else. That is a fundamental principle of salvation. That's why Jesus is demanding that this man give up his wealth. What could this man have done? All he had to do was turn to one of his servants. And undoubtedly, he had some sort of entourage with him to turn to his his head servant and say, here are the keys to my houses. Take a million dollars for yourself. Sell everything else. Give it away today. I'm going with Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus, do you and these guys, do you need anything? Because in a minute, I'm going to be broke. So before I'm broke, what do you need? I'm yours to command. All he had to do was come to Christ by faith. Getting rid of his money wasn't earning salvation. It wasn't a good work to achieve God's favor. It was merely proof that the true and living God was now the only God in his life. He was one moment from heaven. But unless he got saved at a later time not recorded in Scripture, he will suffer in hell for all eternity because he wanted to enjoy the God of his money for a few more decades rather than have treasure in heaven forever. But this story has a highly uncomfortable part. Jesus indicates that no one can be saved. He gives this kind of ridiculous analogy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that means just what it sounds like, a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle, than for anyone to be saved. No one's able to attain salvation from God. Why is this? Because with man, it's impossible Why is it impossible? Let me give you several reasons. Salvation is impossible. First of all, you're incapable of reaching God. You can't reach God. You can't call Him. You can't talk to Him. You can't communicate with Him unless He allows you. 
Why are you incapable of reaching God? Because Ephesians 2, 1 says you are spiritually dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Salvation is impossible because you had polluted minds and infected hearts. Polluted minds, infected hearts. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We think of Romans 8, 7 and 8, that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You couldn't be saved because you were enslaved to sin and enslaved to Satan. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. Ephesians 2, 2, you are following after the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, you are in the snare, the trap, the pit of Satan to do his will. And you were, you couldn't be saved because you're unable to change yourself. You couldn't make a New Year's resolution. You couldn't try to have better character. You couldn't try to obey more. You had no ability. Job 14, verse 4 asks the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Jeremiah 13, 23 says that just as soon as a leopard can change its spots, then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And of course, with ultimate clarity, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 18, that a diseased or a bad tree cannot bear what? Good fruit. So with man, salvation is impossible. That's the uncomfortable part. But Jesus goes on to say, with God, all things are possible. What is it that God makes possible? He enabled you to give up your own kingdom so that you can enter God's kingdom. He enabled that. Romans 8, 14, you've been led by the Spirit of God to be sons of God. We think about Acts 16, Paul is preaching to women in Philippi and Lydia was listening and the Lord opened her heart. John 1, 13, you were born again by the will of God. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again. 1 John 5, 4, you've been born of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you're a new creation in Christ. John 5, 21, the Son of God gives life only to those whom he will. So, O camels of Christ, you have threaded the needle. Because of the power of God. And that's why we give. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Classic, classic passage. 2 Corinthians 9. Verses 6 through 8. And that brings us to a third reason we give. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, the third reason we give, give because of God's provision. Give because of God's provision. Now just to set up the context ever so briefly here, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul had appealed for help in the Jerusalem Relief Fund. In the 40s AD, Jerusalem became impoverished because of of famines and difficulties in, in Judea, in the whole area. The Corinthians had promised to give, but they hadn't written the check yet. They hadn't followed through. And so here in 2 Corinthians, both chapters 8 and 9, Paul's reminding them, uh, reminding them of this commitment, telling them, remember what you promised. And this little passage in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 is so delightful. 
it's a comfort to us because it addresses, I, I think might be one of our greatest fears in giving. Now, our greatest fear in giving most often, I believe, is that we fear that if we give abundantly, that God will fail to provide for us. That, that I won't have enough. And that's not an unreasonable fear. We're called to provide for ourselves, for our families. But these three verses help assuage that fear. What is Paul going to do to address fear? Well, it's the same thing you always do to address fear. You address the heart. You address what is inside. And these three verses show that the proper heart attitude gives you confidence that God will always provide for you. In verse 6, we see an attitude we could call expectation. The expectation is found in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. So Paul's using a familiar agricultural metaphor here, that giving to the Lord's work is like sowing. It's like planting a seed. But he speaks first of sowing sparingly. Sparingly is a word that means in scanty or meager measure, thriftily. It means to be one who is stingy, to give frugally. In other words, there's a heart attitude at play. And this has nothing to do, by the way, with dollar amounts. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has to do with how you view giving to the Lord's work. Now, I point this out to mention an important feature of this word, sparingly. Because I think the English word spectacularly self-defines it. This is the heart attitude of giving only what you can spare. That's what it means. In other words, after I've taken care of everything else, after I've funded everything I can possibly think of, I have my dog's funeral fund, I have my cat's claw clipping fund, I have everything else taken care of, now I will give to the Lord's work. He's not condemning taking care of the needs you have in life. He's just saying, very practically, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Meaning, if you have a heart attitude of being frugal with the Lord, frugal with your giving, the Lord's not going to provide a lot more for you to give. Why should he? Why should he? There's the attitude of expectation. In verse 7, we see an attitude we could call consideration. Consideration, to give with thoughtfulness or contemplation. Verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must do. The ESV says each one must give. We often get to the not reluctantly or under compulsion part really fast. Now, just to be precise here, the Greek text doesn't have a verb. The English supplies each one must do. But it's a logical help because the Greek word here means everyone, every man. This is very clear. It doesn't say if you give, then you should give this way. There's an assumption. When you give, give this way. Your consideration, your thoughtfulness means you're not giving grudgingly. Grudgingly, it means giving out of grief, out of sorrow, that you, you don't give what will make you weep. Because you just gave away your rent money. You don't give away that which will cause angst and, and anxiety in your life. And you're not giving under compulsion. Literally means out of duress, out of force. There's no or else attached to your giving. Give or else the work of God in Bakersfield will fail. We don't do that. 
The work of God in Bakersfield will progress with or without us. We would just like it to be with us. Now, there's not a prohibition here against making a strong appeal to give. All of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a strong appeal to give. But it is a prohibition against global disaster warnings if you don't give. And this proper heart attitude toward giving, what does it turn you into? Paul says, a cheerful giver. One who gives without compulsion, without a grudge. And so when your heart is right, when you give with expectation, with consideration, then you can give with anticipation. You have a heart attitude of anticipation. Anticipation of what? That God will provide for you. Verse 8, And God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. This is a very simple concept. That as you are faithful to give and give a little bit more than you think you possibly could, God tends to provide more for you so that you can give more. And let me put it in sports terms. If you play like a starter, he's going to put you in the game. That's what it is. It's a very simple concept. If your heart is right, you give with expectation, consideration, and anticipation. Let me give you a fourth reason we give, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to reference the rest of our text together so we can scoot on a little bit more quickly. Fourth reason we give, give because of God's church. Give because of God's church. Ephesians 4 verse 8 indicates that Christ has given gifts to his church, and verse 11 tells us what those gifts are, or rather, who these gifts are. Ephesians 4 11, and he gave... He himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. These are the shepherds of the church. The apostles, the prophets, replaced now by a completed New Testament, the apostles' teaching and writing. Evangelists, in the technical sense, those very first generation of first church planters in the apostolic era, in the general sense, those who are church planters today. Pastors and teachers, the shepherds of God's church that expound and explain and hold you accountable to the word of God. But the church is built on the backs of the shepherds. The shepherds of Christ's church are to be viewed as a blessing from God. Let me give you several reasons for this, and I'm going to camp on this for a bit. We, we, we want to be excellent in our ecclesiology why are the shepherds of Christ's church to be viewed as a blessing? And obviously we don't do this to be self-serving. You have blessed me and all the shepherds here a thousand times over, so uh, we're comfortable talking about this. Why are the shepherds of Christ's church a blessing? First reason, because of the gifting. The gifting I'm speaking of is Ephesians 4 says that they're a gift from Christ. A gift from Christ, our, our brother Tom ministers in the UK where it is not uncommon for, for a, a good and decent church to go four, five, six, and seven years before they have a, a new shepherd, to go years without a pastor. The whole context of Ephesians 4, 8 through 11 is that, that the ascension is somehow, the ascension of Christ is somehow connected to the fact that Christ gave gifts of men. He left behind 12 that quickly became thousands. So the shepherds are a blessing because of the gifting. They're also a blessing because of the calling. 
They're called by God to be shepherds. And it's a, it's a calling that cannot be ignored. It's a calling that, that must be obeyed. It's a calling that's sober and serious. Our friend in the faith, down the road, John MacArthur, he tells the story of his calling. He said this, I'm afraid not to be a pastor. And that's the truth. When I was 18, God threw me out of a car going 70 miles an hour. I landed on my backside and slid 110 yards on the pavement. By the grace of God, I wasn't killed. And by the grace of God, I was committed to become a pastor. Because prior to that, I knew the Lord had called me to do that. I was being rebellious. And I decided if the Lord is going to fight like that, I'm going to give in and be a pastor or whatever else he wants me to be. Every time I scratch my back, I feel the scars of that because they're still there to remind me that I should be faithful to the pastorate or there might be another highway somewhere in my future. That was 65 years ago. The gifting, the calling, there's a third reason the shepherds of Christ's church are to be viewed as a blessing. The training. The training. We don't insist that leaders in the church all have seminary education. Some are self-taught. Others have been well-discipled in the context of the church. But the Lord for many, many centuries now has been training men in a, in a seminary context to greatly accelerate their learning and their growth to be able to shepherd God's people. First Timothy 4, 6, Paul tells, t- says that Timothy had, been, had to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Well-trained men, for the most part, and I'll keep an optimistic view, but well-trained men, for the most part, are not standing in their pulpits just making stuff up. They're studying, they're explaining the intricacies and the nuances of Scripture. There are men who have been devoted to being saturated in the Bible such that they can take what took them 20 years and then 20 hours in a given week and explain it to you in less than an hour. That is a gift. There's a fourth reason shepherds are a blessing. We'll call this the testing. The testing, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Approved is a word that has to do with being approved after going through tests, after going through the fire. A man doesn't just say, I think I'll be a leader in the church. He doesn't just say, God called me to be a leader and so I'm going to be a leader. He is to be tested, he is to be trained, and then he is to be approved. There's a fourth reason shepherds are a blessing. The burdening. The burdening. There are multiple places in the New Testament that give the pastors and elders the duty of leading, of shepherding. This isn't just giving gentle life advice from Scripture. This is not just to help you have a slightly happier Monday morning. This has to do with spiritually leading by their example, their work, by their vision. Hebrews 13, 17 says familiar familiarly to us obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account there's no more serious work every shepherd in our church has lost sleep over that word over the souls we're not gathering to make sure you change your oil on time we're not gathering to make sure you have the proper insurance we're not gathering to make sure that that your home is clean we're not gathering to make sure that that somehow you're a, a good citizen in the united states We're gathering to shepherd your souls. That's weighty work. That's burdensome work. 
The Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians, he said he had anxiety for the churches and for their care. The weightiness of seeing sin and pride and rebellion and fear and slowness to learn in the church of begging God for the continued sanctification of the members. God has placed men in your life with that burden. There's a sixth reason shepherds are a blessing, the transforming. The transforming. You know what I love? I love that I have a calling from God with guaranteed success. The book of Isaiah says that the word of God will not go forth and come back empty. Every time we fire the gun of the word of God, it's loaded. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And how does this transformation happen? It happens by beholding the glory of God. How do you behold the glory of God? You behold the glory of God in the Word of God, preached and explained and applied and assisted, insisted upon. Because the light of the world is also called the Word of God. Those two concepts go together. And God has raised up men to teach us the glories of Christ. And it changes us to be like him. You see, the church lives or dies on the backs of her shepherds. The church without shepherds is not a church. And so to support the shepherds is to love the church. And the practical outworking of this love for the church is to support the shepherds as commanded in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, that you don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing, that the laborer is worthy of his wages. The church is like anything else, isn't it? You get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Here's a fifth reason we give, and we're going to, the last three are just going to get more lofty and I think more heavenly. The fifth reason we give, give because of God's reward. Give because of God's reward. Jesus said in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he gives this negative injunction. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He He defines treasure on earth in terms of how temporary it is, how unprotectable it is. He defines it as where moth can destroy. This is speaking of the wealth of fine clothing, which in the ancient Near East was basically a form of currency, where rust can destroy. Now, the word rust is kind of a best guess translation. It's a Greek word that just means a consuming, an eating, so to speak. It could be translated rust, can be translated worm, something that consumes. It could be the corrosion which attacks metallic objects. It could also speak of rodents, bugs, getting into your granaries and storehouses, consuming your harvest, anything that consumes. And he says, we're thieves, break in and steal. So if the moths, the bugs, and the rats don't get you, then the neighborhood thief might. Jesus' point here is that material possessions may appear to be substantial. They may appear to be lasting. 
But they're subject to loss in any number of ways, and so we're not to set our hearts on these things. We, we hold them loosely. We enjoy them while we have them, but we hold them loosely. So what did Jesus mean by this prohibition? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's not saying not to go about daily work with care and diligence. He's not saying that business owners shouldn't try to make a profit. He's not saying that we shouldn't reasonably save for the future. And he's certainly not saying to feel guilty about enjoying good things on the earth. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He is saying that to hoard and to enjoy all that you have only for yourselves is sinful and it reveals the state of your heart. Now, the topic of heavenly reward is a massive one that we don't have time for today. If we had time, we could look at our heavenly inheritance. We could look at the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the wealth of nations described in Revelation 21, the rewards of the responsibilities will be given in the coming uh, kingdom of Christ on earth. But just for this moment, to be very, very precise, suffice to say that part of the reward is return for earthly losses. Part of your reward is return for earthly losses. Matthew 19, verse 29, Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. In other words, if you'll permit me to use a double negative to express a positive, you will never give something that you will not receive back many times over. Or we could put it positively, everything you do give is a guaranteed investment to be cashed in the next life. Let me give you a sixth reason we give, and we're going to just go as lofty as we can here. Sixth reason we give, give because of God's glory. Give because of God's glory. My observation has been that non-denominational churches like ours, independent churches, I think over the course of decades, we've lost a robust theology of sacred space. And in our attempts to push back against empty, false religious shows of pseudo-Christianity that often take place in beautiful cathedrals and religious buildings, we may have gone too far in forgetting that God has always valued sacred space, a space devoted to worship. Let me ask you this. If sacred space wasn't important, why did Jesus get so violently angry when the temple was being misused? He said why. My father's house is a house of what? Prayer. In other words, it's a sacred space. It's set apart. It's sanctified. It's holy. And sacred space, all the way at the very beginning of redemptive history, has always been part of the story of God's people. The very first sacred space was the Garden of Eden itself. It was sacred because this was the place God met with mankind. How do we know it was a sacred space? How do we know this was a space designated by God? Because when Adam sinned and his communion with God was broken, he was evicted from the sacred space because Adam wasn't sacred anymore. The second sacred space in redemptive history were the altars and shrines of the Old Testament, the early days, the altars and shrines, the sons of Adam brought offerings to a specific sacred space outside the Garden of Eden. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, many others built altars to the Lord as sacred spaces. The third sacred space 
in redemptive history, the tabernacle, the traveling worship center of Israel. And it was a significant space. Exodus 26 tells us that it was to be constructed of 10 massive curtains of fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. The curtains were embroidered with cherubim, the angels who were always at God's throne. The clasps to hold the curtains together were to be made of gold. Goat's hair was to be used for the covering of the tent. It was, it was waterproof. And these were connected by clasps made of bronze. The frames for the tabernacle were to be made of acacia wood, much harder than oak, much harder than many other woods. The frames were to have bases made of silver. That's just the outside. God gave so much ornate detail about this structure. And this is just the traveling version. This is the RV version, so to speak, of the temple. And that's the fourth sacred space, the temple in Jerusalem. The temple of God built by Solomon was to be grand and amazing. The inside ceiling was about 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, 50 feet high. The highest point in the temple complex was about 20 stories high. It was built with massive stones prepared only at the quarry so that the temple area wasn't polluted by the sounds of hammers and tools working on the stones on the site. The inner sanctuary floors and walls and ceilings were all cypress wood and cedar. And on the cedar was carved gourds and blooming flowers. The innermost sanctuary was a a cube, 30 feet high, wide and long, and completely overlaid with gold. By the way, that's 5,400 square feet of gold surface area. And the innermost sanctuary, in there were two cherubim, angels made of olive wood, 15 feet high each with a wingspan of 15 feet. All around the walls were carved angels everywhere, palm trees, flowers. The outer part of the building was decorated with carved pomegranates. Now you might be asking, what's with all the gold, the cedar, the cypress, the palm trees, the flowers, the pomegranates? The temple was to be a reminder of paradise lost. It was a picture of the Garden of Eden. It was the going back to the first sacred space, and it provided hope that a final sacred space was coming. But now, under the new covenant in Christ, where did, where did the church want to gather? The church in Jerusalem also wanted to gather at the temple because they were worshiping the same God just under the new covenant now in Christ. The new church in Jerusalem gathered in the outer courts of the temple in massive numbers of many thousands of people. But the great persecution which began with the stoning of Stephen and resulted in the dispersing of most of the Jerusalem Christians, it made meeting at the temple more difficult. Christians at times tried to use Jewish synagogues to gather. Paul in Ephesus proclaimed the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue, but when there he met opposition, the true believers in Christ followed Paul out of the synagogue. They met at a building called the Hall of Tyrannus, probably a lecture hall or a school of some sort. The church of Corinth met in the home of Philemon. The church at Laodicea met in the house of Nympha. The church in Rome, or part of it at least, met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. And so for a long time, the church of Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes, had no sacred space. And when persecution became extremely deadly under the reigns of Nero and his successors, having a sacred space anywhere in the Roman Empire became virtually impossible. But as we mentioned last week, when Emperor Constantine in the 4th century in 313 
issued the edict of Milan, what else happened in Milan in 313? The church built a building. They built a sacred space. Over the next decade or two in Rome, 20 churches were put up. Because God's people have always had a sacred space devoted to the worship of God in Christ. Now what in the world are we talking about sacred space for? Because sacred space is for one reason. It is a place to gather to the glory of God. Our worship is about His glory, and that's why we give. Let me give you one more, a seventh reason we give. This is really the loftiest one we could think of. Give because of God's kingdom. Give because of God's kingdom. And, and I don't mean the kingdom that is being gathered, the citizens being gathered right now. I'm looking beyond that. I'm looking to the final state. Listen to this description of what life will be like in the final eternal state. When new Jerusalem has come to new earth and all believers of all the ages are living in perfect glory in resurrected bodies. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 23, is a glorious description. And the city, that is New Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. There is a sun and a moon, by the way. New heavens, new earth. There's just no need for the sun and the moon because the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be closed by day for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I simply want to point out one little dynamic. We could spend so much time on this. But one little dynamic in this glorious passage. Twice. Twice it says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor to New Jerusalem. This is speaking of the nations giving to the Lord. Verses 24 and 26 says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and their honor of the nations to New Jerusalem. Honor is the word teme. It's often used in the New Testament to speak of money, of wealth, of things, of possessions. This is a scene of the kings of the earth bringing their the glorious riches of their lands, their goods, their produce, their products, their particular specialties. This likely indicates some sort of commerce, but it's very significant that these goods, these gifts are brought first to New Jerusalem. They're first a gift to the Lord. That finally the biblical concept of the first fruits giving off the top is always obeyed. Even in the millennial kingdom, the intermediate kingdom between the current age and the final state, we learn in Zechariah 14, 14 that the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. Also in the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 60, 11, and 12, your gates shall be opened continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Now, if this is the pattern, if this is the pattern, we can imagine great and grand parades of of wealth and treasure and the nations being paraded in their particular costumes or, or however they dress in the New Jerusalem. The nations will be like the Queen of Sheba in Solomon's day, bringing to the king in Jerusalem gold and spices and precious stones and wood and musical instruments and treasures of all kinds. 
And where will all this wealth come from to be brought to King Jesus by the nations? It will be given. It will be collected. And what joy you'll have to give of your great abundance toward a massive, literally nationwide offering to the Lord. Why should we be giving right now? Because you will always be giving to the Lord. That will always be a part of your life. That will always be a part of your eternal existence with God. This is an eternal activity in the coming kingdom of God on earth. But I have to return to where we began. If you know Christ, that's a glorious future. But you can only have a part in this if you're found in Christ. If you've repented of your sin, which keeps you from fellowship with God, and if you trust Christ to pay the penalty of your countless offenses against God, that if you want to be part of this glorious kingdom in which you can give unto the Lord, listen carefully, you can give nothing to God until He first gives to you. You can give nothing to Him until He gives to you. In fact, you trying to give to Him is an abomination to Him. It's disgusting to Him. He wants nothing that you have. First, He must give to you. He must give salvation in Christ by His grace alone through your faith alone. You can give nothing to merit the salvation. He wants nothing. It is the gift of God. Then, and only then, can you be part of this kingdom in which Isaiah 60 says that the people, that's you, will bring the wealth of the nations with their kings in procession. I, I don't know if you're grasping this. You will march through the gates of pearl. You will march through the diamond walls onto the streets of gold alongside the river of life under the great leaves of the tree of life to give to the Lord seated on his throne. You think any of you will give sparingly at that point? No, you'll be giving in gratitude for the cross of Christ upon which our Savior suffered. You'll be giving in gratitude for the cross of Christ upon which your sins were absolutely obliterated. You're giving in gratitude for the cross of Christ upon which your eternal destiny in God was purchased. You're giving in gratitude for the cross of Christ which should have been your cross for your own sin. Because all of the offerings, everything we give, everything we sacrificially donate as it were, we offer to the Lord all the way forward in New Jerusalem will be in thanks and gratitude for the cross of Christ. Now, I've given you seven reasons to give. We could have just saved time and said there's one reason we give. Because of the cross. That's why we give. Let's pray together. Our Father, you own us. You own the air that we breathe. You own the very dirt that we walk on. You own our food, our water, our lives, the breath in our lungs, the beating of our hearts. You own it all. And as such, you have rightly demanded that we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his kingship. And you have taking it upon yourself to provide the means by which we can be forgiven of our sins of selfishness and lying and murder and, and cheating and stealing the countless 
books and books and books with records of our sins against you. In Christ, those books are blank. And instead, our name, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, Lord, we pray for our little tiny corner of the kingdom on earth that you are building in anticipation of the return of Christ. We, we ask you, Lord, to help our little body of believers here to be faithful to you, to play a part in that kingdom progress as we see citizens coming to faith. And as today we have also, Lord, been so overjoyed to hear from Tom and from Claudio. We ask for provision for them as well. We ask for generous hearts from the members of Grace Bible Church Rugby. We ask you, Lord, to provide members of Madera Grace, Madera Bible Church, Lord, and to turn them into those that are generous as well because of the gospel. We rest on an incredible promise. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church, said, I will build my church. And so we look forward to being part of that work and seeing what you will do throughout this age and seeing the results of it in the ages to come. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.